How do we fight a war against Iraq and Afghanistan? How do we use technology to fight those battles? Let's ask Winston Churchill. I'm Sophie Edmonds. And I'm Patrick de Butler. So today we always hear all these stories about the war in Afghanistan, which has now gone into its 16th year. It's the longest war in um, American history. 16 years. It's been a long time, huh? It's an incredibly long time. And it's, you know, such a costly war, both in terms of lives and in terms of time. And there never seems a way out of it. And there's so many questions which go on daily when we're talking about this clash between Western civilization and Islamic fundamentalism, which you see in the newspapers all the time in magazines. And it's fascinating because Winston Churchill was voted over the last you know, decade almost to be Britain's favorite historical figure and its most important. And Winston Churchill, there's an episode of his life which is not that well known today and which is not nearly as well known as it should be, but where he discusses all the subjects which we discuss constantly. And so it's a fascinating way to look at today's issues through Winston Churchill's eyes. So he discusses the similar issues to do with the West and the Middle East. Exactly. Almost all these issues that we talk about constantly, um, how we use technology in war, why, what are we fighting against? Are we fighting against an enemy? Are we fighting against an idea? How the media uh, how the uses media, exactly. a, a villain. Exactly. The media comes into it greatly. Um, all these important points, but also these very fascinating topics, Winston Churchill talks about at great length. So let's first look at how Winston Churchill participated in this war in the Sudan. So when Winston Churchill was a young man around the age of 25, he was a rather impoverished... Um, cavalry officer in India, and he wasn't doing that much with his time. He was serving as an officer, but there was no great conflict going on. He led a life which was pretty much a lot of drinking, a lot of polo, uh, you know, a bit of traveling in between. So despite being impoverished, he was having a good time. He was having a wonderful time. Now, in those days, uh, a cavalry um, officer's salary was not that high compared for the expenditures that they would expect. They would expect to buy beautiful clothes, to dress incredibly well, to host. So they had to buy their own mess kit? So they had to buy their own mess kit. Much more than that, they would buy beautiful things. And Churchill had wonderful taste in that sense. He loved very expensive, very refined things. He'd go to the best tailor and he wanted to have the best ponies and he loved playing polo. And Churchill came from a great family, from a very rich American family on his mother's side. And he was the son of Lord Randolph Churchill, Um, So was part of the Duke of Marlborough's family and had been born at Blenheim Palace. Uh, But they didn't have that much money. The family affairs had been very badly managed. And so Churchill says at one point when he's a young man, the only thing that worries me is money. And he's very worried because he wants to have a political career later on. And to have a political career in late 19th century, uh, Britain costs a lot of money. You have to host lots of dinners. You have to pay for a lot of events, you know. So it's more like an American campaign trail today. Yes, I mean, absolutely. And in, in the same sense, it costs a lot in those days to run in, in the same way that an American election costs a lot of money or constantly raising money. So young Winston Churchill looks around him and says, what can I do? So he wants two things at this point in his life. He wants to serve in a conflict because he wants to see action. He wants to get medals. He wants, you know, to be seen as a hero and he wants to leave his mark. But he also wants to make money, and he sees that one of the best ways to make money at the time is to be a foreign correspondent. At the time, a foreign correspondent is paid five times more in terms of salary if he's successful than a cavalry officer would be. 
And the British press is incredibly important. I mean, novels are serialized. You know, it's the real lifeblood uh, of the empire, the daily news. So all the newspapers have enormous readership. Well, back then, that's where people got their entertainment. No television, no social media. No, exactly. I mean, a huge part of their entertainment. Papers are meant to be entertaining. You know, they're owned by these very colorful proprietors who are constantly launching expeditions that cost a lot of money. And so Churchill petitions uh, a lot of influential politicians while he's in India, including the Prime Minister at the time, Lord Salisbury. And he says, I hear there's a campaign that's going to go and happen in the Sudan, and could I be a part of it? And he gets rejected by pretty much everyone. Now, he does manage, and he's very successful in getting a contract on one of the newspapers for the Morning Post, and they offer him a lot of money to go and be their correspondent. So he's got that job, he's got this income, but now he needs to find a way to go down there. Because in order to be a correspondent, then he has to serve in the army. Yes, exactly. Because that's the access. That's the access, and that's the way he would go down there. And his mother, who is this very beautiful woman called Jenny Jerome, an American, known as the American Tigress, you know, and it's a very famous social figure. And she's got quite a reputation for having lots of lovers. And there's this funny episode where she goes to Egypt and she has an affair with a man called Sir Evelyn Wood, who's an attache uh, for the British expedition going into the Sudan. And he manages to get a position for Churchill. And there's quite funny episode where Churchill is writing to his mother and he doesn't really mind at all that his mother potentially got him the post by having an affair. Well, um, did he encourage it? No, he didn't encourage it. I mean, I think she just saw an opportunity and she took advantage of it. She was notorious for loving men and she had quite a reputation. She was considered this great, great beauty. Um, wow, but it's, what a mother. What a mother, exactly, who'd do anything for her son. <laughs> and Churchill is absolutely delighted because he gets his posting through this relationship. And so there's only one problem, it's, which is that all the officers' uh, postings are taken. So he's given a commission, but he can't go. And then by some great stroke of luck uh, for him, but not for the other person, one of the officers dies. And so Churchill gets a position on the staff. So Churchill is all ready to go. He's got his uh, foreign correspondence contract. And so you've got a 26-year-old Churchill who's ready to go. So he goes on to the expedition. Now, to put the now ex- what year was this? Now, this is in 1885. Um, so you're at the very end of the Victorian period. And it's a very interesting um, expedition. And to give it a little bit of context, the British, um, several decades before, in the 1860s, had had a conquest of the Sudan. So they'd gone and tried to conquer all the lands. And they'd come up against a man called the Mahdi, and the Mahdi was a religious leader. So the Mahdi is a, is a title which means the chosen one, the self-proclaimed prophet, who tried to unite the various tribes in the South Sudan using religion. And he was very successful, and he led this incredibly successful campaign, which managed to defeat the British at Khartoum. And the Mahdi took over Khartoum, defeated the British, and killed uh, what was England's greatest hero at the time, General Charles Gordon, who was known as Chinese Gordon because he'd put down the Boxer Rebellion in China and was this incredible character, quite a sort of missionary-like. You know, they said he was very devout, was known for his very piercing blue eyes, his great discipline. And there's this famous painting which is done where you see uh, Gordon of Khartoum facing against the Mahdi's enemies with his sabre just before he's about to be decapitated. 
And this causes a tremendous shock in the British Empire, of course. They lose their most famous general. They lose a part of their empire to the Mahdi's forces. And so the Mahdi is really made into an icon. So exactly. So the Mahdi in the British press is turned into this sort of evil figure. You know, he's this terrible villain. Um, but the Mahdi doesn't last for very long. He dies of cholera the year after. So before he can really try and sweep up towards Egypt, which was his plan, he's dead. And this leaves a vacancy um, in the sort of Prophet's troops. So this is filled by a man who's going to call himself the Khalifa. And the Khalifa means the king, basically. So he tries to unite all the tribes, but politically. And he was one of the Mahdi's generals, and he's very successful. So he manages to gather them um, all together. And the only belt walk between are the Egyptian troops. So Egypt at the time is a British possession, but not directly. So it has its you know, own forces, which are part of the empire, but which fight. But the British um, press rouse up the empire so much that they decide to go and fight themselves and to reconquer the Sudan and to avenge uh, Gordon's death. And they put a man called Kitchener in charge of this expedition. Now, Kitchener will become very famous later on because he'll lead uh, Britain's army during the First World War. And of that's... course. So this is early career for Kitchener. So this is very early career. And the British mount up this great expeditionary force with thousands of men, and they go down with Egyptian forces and other empire forces, including Indian troops, and they all get together. And this army is very technologically advanced. So they've got all the latest weaponry, including machine guns, which are rather unknown. They've got millions of rounds of ammunition, all the best rifles they can. And they head down on this expedition of revenge. And Churchill is right at the center of it. And Churchill writes his columns back home, which are incredibly popular. You know, they're full of action and full of life. And, and in comparison, what kind of weapons did they have? Well, the Mahdi, uh, the Khalifa's forces, you know, had sort of very typical weapons for the time. So they had spears, they had sabers, they had some rifles. Um, they were all mounted on horseback. So compared to the British, they had a very classic sort of setup. They weren't well disciplined in the way that the British army was. They were fearsome warriors, apparently, according to Churchill. And we'll get into that later, uh, especially when we come to talk about Churchill's book, The River War, which he published after this. But the British managed to meet them in open battle, and it's going to be a very, very famous battle because it's the last cavalry charge of the British Empire. And so they meet south of Khartoum in what are now the suburbs of Khartoum, but in those days were open fields at a place called Omdurman. So um, it, what is the battle called? So the Battle of Omdurman. So the Battle of Omdurman, and it's the last... Great cavalry charge of the British Empire. And Winston Churchill is right in the thick of it. And Churchill, you know, discusses how he charges towards the enemy, and there's this fearsome battle, and he's cutting down his enemies with his sabre, and he's shooting them with his revolver, and he can see them drop to the ground. And he writes all of this, and, you know, it's all published in the Morning Post in England, and it becomes a sensational newspaper story. People love reading about it. And it's a complete victory for the British. They absolutely destroy the Khalifa's forces. Um, well, now the, with those weapons, I'm not surprised. Well, absolutely. It's completely unfair. The British mow them down with Maxim machine guns, and, you know, there's, there's no chance for the Khalifa's army to succeed, really. And it's an absolute slaughter. I mean, for maybe 46 British soldiers killed, you've got several thousand of the Khalifa's troops which are slaughtered, maybe up to 10,000 according to some numbers. Now, the Khalifa manages to escape, but he won't survive very long like the Mahdi. He'll be captured almost a year later by British troops and killed in battle. And 
that's the end of the British expedition. It's very successful. Now, we get into a very interesting point in it because Churchill is going to have a terrible dispute with his commanding officer. Kitchener is this very forceful figure, and he decides that there has to be absolute revenge. So he goes to the Mahdi's tomb, which is this very beautiful tomb set in a mosque by the river on the Nile. And he desecrates it. He decapitates the skull from the body in it. He destroys the entire tomb. He throws the skeleton into the Nile. And he brings back all the jewels in the tomb and the head to England as presents for Queen Victoria and for his estate. And Churchill thinks this is outrageous. Churchill thinks he's desecrating a man who was a hero to the local people. And he writes about it publicly. And this is sensational because Churchill is serving under Kitchener's orders. So there was no non-disclosure agreements in the British armies? No, there was no non-disclosure. And fascinatingly, it's going to change the law because Churchill's campaign is so virulent against his own commanding officer that the British press takes it up and they're all outraged. And there's this enormous outrage which happens in all the British papers against Kitchener. And Kitchener is absolutely furious. And the British high command has to deal with the situation. Well, he would have thought he was coming back a hero after the battle. Exactly. Kitchener thought he'd come back celebrating. And instead, he has to face from one of his very own officers this press campaign, which is saying, you know, he's acted monstrously and like a barbarian. And... It's very interesting because it goes all the way to Parliament and Parliament bans officers from serving as foreign correspondents because of Winston Churchill's actions as a journalist. Ah, so they reduce transparency in the media. Exactly, and uh, which is something that kept going for a very, very long time. It's not really until the Vietnam War that correspondents get more freedom in terms of what they can cover about atrocities. You know, during the First and Second World War, the press is very limited and has to be very patriotic and very much toe the line on the whole. And this is in great part because of Churchill's uh, actions during the war. And Churchill obviously knows great success, so he decides he wants to bank on this success and make money by publishing a book. And he writes this two-volume book called The River War. And unfortunately, it doesn't sell well because Churchill, by the time it's published, is 26. He's about to turn 27. And the Boer War is just getting underway in South Africa. And the whole attention of the press and of the British people turns to the Boer War. And it's one of the great reasons why this book is forgotten, which it doesn't deserve to be because it's absolutely fascinating. And now it's getting a bit of a second life because there's new editions coming out of it. And people have been quoting it a lot in the press recently and politicians over the last few years because Churchill talks very openly and in great detail about things that we talk all the time about all the time now. So one of the first things he talks about is in the press is how you demonize other people. And in Churchill's point of view, for example, he says that the Mahdi and that the Sudanese are caricatured by the British in order to stop the war. And he thinks this is completely wrong because you're dehumanizing them, you're reducing them to a puppet. And one of the great parallels that can be drawn with it is very much the way that George Bush and Tony Blair... Well, this is what we've continued to do today uh, because Blair and Bush created a supervillain out of Saddam Hussein over 100 years ago. The British turned the Mahdi into a pantomime villain. In both cases, the politics in the region are so complicated that citizens are not going to understand. So politicians simplify to create clear characters of good and evil. No, and it's exactly that. And 
Churchill is very much against it because he thinks that you're making everything completely black and white when it doesn't deserve to be, and that you're going to create such a disconnect over time that you're going to become terrible enemies for all the wrong reasons. And so Churchill is quite horrified by the way this false patriotism is drummed up in the press and used by the British government as propaganda. And so that's one very interesting parallel. And another one is technology. Churchill says that the British come so well prepared to fight the war, but they're not prepared to fight the war of ideas. No. Well, we in the West have advanced technology in the wars we're fighting in the Middle East. We have drones, fighter pilots, cruise missiles. Taliban, ISIS, Islamic fighters have machine guns and basic bombs. So if there's a pitch battle, we'll easily win it. But back in the late 19th century, the British Army had machine guns, cannons, telegram services you were describing earlier for effective communication. The Mahdi had horses and swords. So in both cases, advanced technology and weaponry will defeat temporarily, but will they defend, defeat ideas and ideologies? And Churchill's point of view on this is very much no. Churchill says, we're so advanced technologically, we can defeat them very easily in open battle with our machine guns, just in the way that the Americans and the British found that in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, they could defeat the enemy very easily. They had such enormous air superiority, drones, surveillance, intelligence, but they can't defeat an idea. And Churchill says Islam, and this is probably the most controversial passage of his book, and it's incredibly controversial even now when it's read out publicly, is he says Islam is a fascinating religion because it turns people into very fierce warriors, in his opinion. He says it's a very, very strong ideologically um, as a religion. And he says that technology won't stop it. And he says that if the idea itself isn't combated by the West and by their values, it'll come to, to fight them in Europe, which is something that we see very much and we talk about all the time now with terrorist attacks going on in France and England. Well, the terrorist attacks particularly, which involve uh, a van or a car driving into citizens, that is not technologically advanced at all. Anyone can go and rent a car and a van and drive it into someone. So there is no military tactic against that. Well, that's absolutely right, and that's very much what Churchill is talking about, because Churchill doesn't have a very positive view on the religion on the whole in his book. And this is where it leads to a lot of controversy. A lot of politicians, including some very right wings in the UK, have been arrested for reading passages from Churchill's book on the River War, because he finds that it it turns people into such fierce warriors, but he sees it as quite a destructive religion. Churchill is very much a man of his time. He's very much a Victorian, uh, and he always will remain. Even during the Second World War, he'll describe himself as a Victorian living in the 20th century. And to him, he sees Islam as a great enemy against the ideas of the West. And that's very much his viewpoint, which he sticks to very strongly in the book. And Does he have any ideas of how to battle ideas? Well, no, because the problem is he says that it's a very difficult religion to combat because he says that he sees it as a religion which pushes towards violence because it turns people into such fierce wars. It's got such a strong influence on them. And he says he can't quite see, but he does say technology is not what will defeat that form of Islam in the book. Mm. Now, he's not completely anti-Islam. He talks about, you know, it being a beautiful religion in parts, and he does talk about it being a very strong religion, but he is very worried by what he sees as the violent elements in it, and he yes. sees them as being very strong. Well, the extremist 
elements perhaps was the islam that churchill was battling was that more extremist or in back in back in the 19th century well an argument can be made with the mahdi the mahdi is certainly leading what he would call a holy war now it's an interesting argument because the the Mahdi and his followers would say that it's their lands, that those lands in the Sudan belong to them. So they were just expelling the invader, in part the Egyptians, the Italians had been there before, uh, then the British had come. So they saw it very much as a war of freedom. But Churchill's point is that they're, it's, they're a very destructive force because the Mahdi's forces are very violent. They do pillage Khartoum completely. But it's absolutely fair to say that both sides in the war didn't behave well. The British certainly didn't behave well in their war of revenge. And the Mahdi's forces completely destroyed Khartoum when they took it over in 1885. So I don't think any side is particularly justified in its actions in the war. It's more that the echoes of what Churchill is writing today are absolutely fascinating. Because again, we seem to be so divided in terms of our combat, but what can really unite us? And is there a middle and a common ground that we can find together? And it's not something that Churchill has an answer to. He can't say, well, this is how you do it. But he does say, these are things that you can try to avoid doing. And it's a lot of things that uh, the West hasn't. It's a lot of things that in Afghanistan and the conduct in the war in Iraq haven't been followed. And that's also very interesting because a lot of historians who met George W. Bush when he was president, including Alistair Horne, who is a very famous British historian who wrote A Savage War for Peace about the French in Algeria. He says that when he spoke to President Bush, he was very disappointed because, yes, President Bush had read his book, but he said that he hadn't understood any of the lessons on it. Alistair Horne said that torture led to nothing. He said that propaganda and turning everyone into a villain led to nothing. And he was saying that none of the lessons of the past had been followed. Well, yes, so it's important for uh, political figures to not only read, but to be able to process and learn lessons of the past. Exactly. I mean, it's vital, and especially when we've got someone who's so experienced as Churchill is, but also who's a young man, so he's seen it through fresh eyes, he's experiencing it right in the thick of it. And it's fascinating that we have this legacy of his. And hopefully politicians going forward will be able to get more of the lessons so that we don't have to be stuck in endless wars and so that countries such as America and Britain don't have to be stuck in these endless wars and that hopefully an understanding between the West and these forms of Islam, there can be an understanding. What do you think the chances of Trump reading some Churchill? Well, from what we know about Trump, he's not so keen on reading books now. Uh, hopefully you never know you always hope for the best with politicians and you never know uh, if he did read Churchill could he get the lessons from it I mean one would hope so well the problems that Churchill was facing and we're facing today hopefully hopefully political figures can learn from the past and we can stop history repeating itself absolutely I mean you know it's one of the great things with history is you always hope that you can learn from its mistakes or from the mistakes which were done by people historically and you know that's one of the great gifts we have so Um, and we're living in an age where we have access to information more than we ever have before so there really is no excuse no there's no excuse and I mean even this book the the river war is a perfect example because a lot of uh the additions after were um, uh, how to say, they were redacted by the British government. So a lot of passages which were considered controversial were taken out. 
including Churchill's references about Kitchener. And nowadays we have access to the original copies. And it's very interesting also in a small point because Kitchener becomes head of the army during the First World War, but Churchill becomes the head of the navy during the First World War. And what does it mean that two men who were formed as enemies in this conflict in the Sudan were in charge of the two most important parts of the British military during the First World War? And did that lead to terrible consequences in a war which is often criticised for its conduct? Well, they didn't get on so well, did they, after they, that they incident? Didn't. They didn't. So I think, I think that's... Um... A topic for another podcast. It is. It would be a very interesting topic for another podcast. Uh, but anyway, that's today's uh, talk on Winston Churchill as a young man and to see what the lessons of the past can teach us today. Yeah, let's try and learn from the past and not make the same mistakes again and again and again. Thank you very much. Thank you.